Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from my panel of expert speakers. We'll allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on your touchstone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Mesner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Oh, thank you so much, Michelle. And I, too, would like to welcome everyone to today's Cancer Care Connect Education Workshop, Medical Update on Ovarian Cancer. And today's program is supported by GlaxoSmithKline and the Diane Appley Fund, and we really want to thank them for their support to this program. Now, we have um, a lot of you on the call today. Um, we have over 150 participants on this program today. You come from all over the United States. Um, and you also have international, both rural, urban, and suburban areas and frontier communities. And we also have international participants from Canada and the United Kingdom. So a bit of a global call as well. And we also um, have a number of our, both of cancer organizations and ovarian cancer organizations that have helped to promote this program. And, I really, and of course, your interest in the program today has brought so many of you to the program today. Now, um, before I introduce our first speaker, I have just a few questions I'd like to ask all of you. Um, it helps us to get a sense of what you know um, coming into the program. It's really helpful to get a sense of, um, and it helps us in planning future programs. So I'm going to start with the first question on a scale of one to five, with one the highest rating and five the lowest rating. Please select your rating. I understand the importance of staging, testing, and precision medicine in informing the treatment for ovarian cancer. Again, one is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And the next question is, I understand the current standard of care, new treatment approaches, and follow-up care for ovarian cancer. Again, one is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And the next question is, I understand the treatment options for recurrent ovarian cancer. Again, one is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And now just two questions left. I understand tips to manage the symptoms, side effects, discomfort, and pain of ovarian cancer. Again, one is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And then this will be the last question. I understand the significance of clinical trials for ovarian cancer. Again, one is the highest rating and five, the lowest rating. I want to thank you all for participating in these questions. It really helps us to better plan programs going forward to meet your needs. And now it's my pleasure to introduce our first speaker. And our first speaker is Dr. Carolyn Runowitz. Dr. Runowitz is Professor, Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology, Executive Associate Dean for Academic Affairs, Herbert Wertheim College of Medicine, Florida International University. And Dr. Runowitz will be addressing an overview of ovarian cancer, including staging, 
how precision medicine and testing inform your treatment decisions, current standard of care, talking with your treatment team about quality of life concerns, and the increasing role of telehealth, telemedicine appointments. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Runowitz. Uh, good afternoon, and thank you again for including me in this important uh, teleconference. Um, so I've been charged uh, with giving you an overview and, and then speaking specifically about some precision medicine, standard of care, quality of life concerns, and then the role of telehealth and telemedicine given um, our new environment of COVID. For most patients, the diagnosis of ovarian cancer is suspected by physical examination, symptoms, or radiologic testing, such as SONO or CAT scan or PET scan or MRI. However, the definitive diagnosis is established by surgery where biopsies or removal of the tissues, specifically the ovaries, the fallopian tubes, or perhaps peritoneal biopsies are performed. The pathologist makes a diagnosis. Epithelial ovarian cancer is the most common of the histologic diagnoses. Dr. Kerr will discuss the pathology and the importance of the pathologist as part of the team. For example, women diagnosed with clear cell, endometrioid, or mucinous ovarian cancer these are different types of ovarian cancer, should be offered somatic tumor testing for mismatch repair deficiency. As such patients may be appropriate candidates for immune checkpoint inhibition or other investigational therapies in the event of refractory disease. Complete surgical staging of epithelial ovarian cancer is important for treatment planning and prognosis. Cytoreduction, or what we call debulking, is removal of all visible tumor. It, that is the goal of initial surgery. In the case of disease beyond the ovary, the goal is to resect the tumor to minimal, that is ideally zero, gross residual disease. This is not always technically possible. However, the best surgical outcomes are with gynecologic oncologists who are specially trained in these surgical techniques. The goal of surgery is to establish the stage of the disease and to remove all visible tumor. Usually a total hysterectomy with removal of both tubes and ovaries or a bilateral salpingo-oophorectomy. Pelvic and periodic node dissections may be done if the disease seems confined to the ovaries. The omentum or the fat pad that hangs from the upper abdomen is a frequent site of metastasis of ovarian cancer, and so that is usually removed as part of the staging procedure. A bowel section or radical pelvic and upper abdominal surgery may be required, which is why this surgery should be performed by a gynecologic oncologist who undergoes additional training to be proficient at this type of surgery. However, in about a third of patients with very advanced disease, and this can be made by reviewing a CAT scan or an MRI or a PET scan, the diagnosis is based on tissue or fluid obtained by image-guided biopsy or a paracentesis or a thoracentesis. 
Following surgery and after reviewing the pathology with the pathologist and the tumor board, chemotherapy is generally initiated with adjuvant platinum and taxane-based chemotherapy. However, remember that one-third of patients with advanced disease, these patients may undergo what we call neoadjuvant chemotherapy prior to definitive surgery, and that option shrinks the tumor down so that it becomes what we call debulkable or it's able to be uh, cytoreduced. The, it's very important that if your physician um, recommends this, that you get an opinion from a gynecologic oncologist to make sure that it isn't surgically removable um, by an experienced uh, surgeon such as a gynecologic oncologist. The standard approach for women requiring first-line therapy is, as I said, a platinum, usually with a taxane. For optimally reduced disease, that is disease less than one centimeter, the chemotherapy may be given intravenously or it can be given intravenously and intraperitoneal or a combination. For patients receiving bevacizumab, and this is another agent that goes after blood vessels, um, those patients usually get IV chemotherapy and not IP, intraperitoneal. For women with a serous or high-grade endometrioid ovarian cancer completing first-line therapy with complete or partial response, in uh, PARP, uh, polymerase inhibitor, should be considered as maintenance therapy. And these are guidelines that have been put out by several societies, including the American Society of Clinical Oncology. This recommendation has been based on the observation that these use of these PARP inhibitors um, as maintenance has resulted in a progression-free survival advantage, even to patients without a known BRCA1 or 2 mutations. That hasn't been true in all trials, but in many trials. The largest benefit in the absence of a BRCA mutation has been seen in women with a homologous repair deficiency. This again points out the importance of the pathologist, and we will hear from Dr. Kerr as a member of the multidisciplinary team. It's important that all patients with a diagnosis of ovarian, fallopian tube, or peritoneal carcinoma have a genetic risk evaluation. It's unrelated to their family history. Just having a diagnosis of ovary, fallopian tube, or peritoneal should prompt a referral for genetic evaluation. And in that genetic evaluation, um, mutations such as BRCA, Lynch syndrome, um, CHECK, and others will be looked for. While you're undergoing surgery and chemotherapy, it is very important that you have a quality of life. When I first started many, many years ago, um, almost 40 years ago, um, there, were not, there were no agents that were um, designed at that time for uh, the side effects. Today, it is a different story. During treatment, it is extremely important that patients relay their symptoms so that they can be treated. There are great anti-nausea medications. There are um, ways to monitor side effects like neuropathy, nerve damage. Ice caps can reduce hair loss. Fatigue can be managed. 
And following treatment, many patients have short-term side effects, such as nerve changes, problems with memory, concentration, and fatigue. So it's very important to speak with your treatment team about these symptoms so that they can be reviewed and potentially treated or alleviated. During COVID, the use of telehealth was tremendously expanded in following patients after surgery and chemotherapy. Telehealth is broadly defined as the use of electronic information and telecommunications to support your health care. And it's done in a remote setting. A significant limitation is the inability to conduct an in-person physical exam. And I am a hands-on doc. I like to examine my patients. But given COVID and given the restrictions, we all had to adopt. So if your healthcare team is using this modality, you should come prepared to these appointments. Make sure you have adequate internet connectivity, a list of problems or concerns, and it's my recommendation that you bring another set of ears, somebody who can hear what the doctor or nurse is saying, because oftentimes during stressful uh, situations, one doesn't hear what one is being told. And that concludes my remarks. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Rubinowitz. That was really outstanding, and it's really set the wonderful stage for today's program, and a lot of excellent information. I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A. Thank you so much. Um, and our next speaker is uh, Dr. Vonner Hendrickson. And Dr. Vonner Hendrickson is a medical oncologist, Mayo Clinic Cancer Center, assistant professor of oncology and pharmacology, Mayo Clinic College of Medicine. And Dr. Vonner Hendrickson will be addressing treatment options for recurrent ovarian cancer, new and emerging treatment approaches, clinical trial updates, managing symptoms, treatment side effects, discomfort and pain, and guidelines to prepare for telehealth, telemedicine appointments, including technology and prepared list of questions. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Vanna Hendrickson. Hello, and, and thank you so much for having uh, me on today to kind of talk about some of those things that you just mentioned. And that's a lot of information, and so what I hope to do is just give you an overview, and then hopefully during the question-answer period, we can discuss whatever um, questions you have remaining. So the topic that I'll start with is treatment options for recurrent ovarian cancer. So if you discover that your cancer has come back, and sometimes that's found by lab tests such as a CA-125, um, or new symptoms that you see your physician for and a CT scan may uh, reveal that the cancer has come back. In general, what will first happen is they will talk to you about whether your ovarian cancer is what we call platinum sensitive or platinum resistant. And what that really means is we measure the time from your last chemotherapy, so your last treatment of the chemotherapy for your initial diagnosis, and how long it takes for the cancer to come back. And we have um, a, a, a timeline where if we say that the cancer takes more than six months for it to come back, we often reuse that platinum drug, which is the carboplatin, or for some people they may have received cisplatin. So then if it's been more than six months, we often use that drug again. And so a different chemotherapy drug is added to it, but that is a drug that we tend to reuse. If it grows back in less than six months, we do think that maybe there are 
better treatment options outside of reusing that carboplatin drug because it did recur relatively uh, quickly. And so then those options are a bit different. So that's really the first dividing point. What also will be reviewed is your CT scan. Sometimes, if there's been a very long period of time where the cancer has not come back, we can consider doing a repeat surgery. It's in very specific cases, such as one tumor nodule that has grown back, um, but it is worth talking to your oncologist about whether that might be an option as well. But even if there is surgery recommended, we usually add chemotherapy afterwards as well. In some cases, it might just be a rise in CA125 or a little indeterminate area on a CT scan where we may say, you know what, it makes sense to just watch and wait. And so this can sometimes be a little nerve-wracking when there is some concern that cancer is back, but your team says, let's just monitor. Um, and that's really based on some clinical trials in the past that's shown that it's okay to wait um, and allow a little bit more time to recovery, a little time to discuss treatment options. So treatment doesn't have to, you know, be initiated the day you find out that the cancer has come back. There is some time to kind of think about treatment options and, um, and review everything that is available. What is really important, um, and I think this falls under the two topics that I want to talk about, new and emerging treatment op approaches as well as clinical trial updates, is that all of the drugs that we use for ovarian cancer at this time were once in clinical trials. So it's really important to talk to your healthcare team about the role of clinical trials in ovarian cancer. And the clinical trials, you know, that you can consider those at the time of diagnosis, at the time it comes back. It's never too soon to think about clinical trials. And it's just really important to know that that is a good option for you. And this is where the new therapies are being um, investigated and being developed. Of course, clinical trials can be time-consuming. Um, they often do require some additional appointments, some additional blood work. Um, so it is a big commitment. But it is definitely worth talking to your healthcare team about those options. Um, and if there is not one that's locally available, maybe considering second opinions to see what options may be available. The other new approach um, which can be helpful in making decisions is additional tumor testing. And so that's taking your tumor and testing it for specific mutations. We often now do this upfront to kind of look at how helpful will those um, kind of PARP inhibitors or um, those targeted therapies that we use as maintenance therapy, how helpful they will be for your tumor, but they can also help us figure out potentially what clinical trials make the most sense for your tumor. And so that can give you some additional information, and I do recommend talking about tumor testing with your healthcare team as well. And in terms of kind of new and upcoming therapies, we've been really excited about the PARP inhibitors, the um, the the like Zajula, for example, the Olaparib, um, and these maintenance therapies. So that's really made the biggest splash for us in ovarian cancer at this time. It can be used initially with therapy, but if you were diagnosed in the past where maybe those were not options, they are options in recurrent ovarian cancer. Usually if the cancer is still platinum sensitive, like we had talked about before, that's, that tends to be where those options work the best. 
What we're struggling with a little bit in ovarian cancer is the role of immunotherapy or having the immune system help fight the cancer. It's really shown a lot of promise in different tumor types, and the current immunotherapy treatments that are FDA-approved for other types of cancers, like melanoma, for example, lung cancer, for example, alone they really have not shown as much promise as we had hoped in ovarian cancer. Sometimes your tumor testing may suggest that it might work for yours. For example, like Dr. Ronowitz had talked about earlier, there are specific tumor types within ovarian cancer that maybe we see a little bit more um, of a response or chance that that immunotherapy would work uh, better. But in general, immunotherapy, kind of the standard immunotherapy that's FDA approved for other um, tumor types has not been quite as promising in ovarian cancer as it has for other tumor types. But there are clinical trials looking at combinations or other approaches as to how to target the immune system to help the treatment of ovarian cancer. And again, these options I would recommend would be through clinical trials. So kind of the new and upcoming therapy, those options are really through clinical trials. In terms of managing symptoms, treatment side effects, discomfort, and pain, like Dr. Ronowitz had mentioned, it's really important to talk to your team about your symptoms. There has been a lot of improvement in terms of ways to manage um, nausea, ways to manage fatigue, and so your healthcare team can really help you if they know what your symptoms are. If they don't know what your symptoms are, don't know that you're struggling at home, it's harder for them to make those recommendations. And so, you know, be sure to reach out to your team to tell them kind of what symptoms you have. Other approaches that may be reasonable are things such as acupuncture, meditation, massage, aromatherapy, yoga, biofeedback. These are all options that can be very helpful depending on the individual and what your symptoms are. So it's also important to talk to your team about those opportunities as well. Sometimes that can be through your healthcare team or sometimes it's looking for those um, through other avenues as well. Um, sometimes physical medicine, you know, rehabilitation is helpful if, if weakness or, you know, um, there's a lot of cancer-related fatigues. There can be some uh, physical therapy that can be very helpful with this as well. The other thing I wanted to touch on, which is really important, and we do encourage most of our women undergoing, you know, treatment for ovarian cancer, to meet with our palliative care team. So palliative care is a specialized medical care for people who have a serious illness. And this is really a team of doctors, um, nurses, uh, nurse practitioners, and others that are focused on providing relief from the symptoms and stress. And I think it's really important to understand that this is not the same thing as hospice. This is really a team of people who just take the time to really focus on your symptoms. So they can help with anything such as fatigue, um, nerve pain, um, appetite issues, nutritional issues, stress, anxiety, all these things that come with the diagnosis of ovarian cancer. And they're really good at helping you manage those symptoms. And if those symptoms can be managed well, it does get easier to, to make it, you know, and, and do those chemotherapy treatments um, when you have your symptoms really well managed. And last of all, I just want to touch briefly on the telehealth or telemedicine appointments, which Dr. Ronwitz has already talked about as well. I think they are a great opportunity for you to get second opinions. I think 
also where we have talked about clinical trials. If you want to reach out to local or, you know, kind of regional areas or, or national areas where you're interested about clinical trials, sometimes these um, telemedicine visits are a good way to understand what the clinical trial may entail and could, you know, help you in terms of deciding if that makes sense before traveling. They can be, you know, lower cost. Um, they can be convenient, less time away from work. Um, but I think the downfall is, you know, it is a little bit harder to get that emotional support and feeling of connection with the telehealth visits. So, you know, now that things are opening up a, a bit, I think it is nice to meet with your providers in person if possible if you're undergoing, you know, chemotherapy and those types of treatments. But I think the telehealth visits are going to continue to be great for second opinions and discussions about, you know, before entering into a clinical trial. But as Dr. Wanowitz had mentioned, make sure that you've got that technology check done. Um, ask about a backup plan in case your technology doesn't work. Be sure to have a pen and paper so that you can write down, um, you know, the recommendations. And like she had mentioned as well, it's nice to have family members there to be another set of ears. So I'll stop there, but I'm happy to take questions at the, um, at the end of this session. Thank you. Oh, thank you very much, Dr. Von Hendrickson. That was outstanding. Just a wonderful presentation. I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A as well. Thank you. Um, and our next speaker is Dr. Sarah Kerr. And Dr. Kerr is a pathologist. She is pathologist um, Hospital Pathology Associates PA, <clears throat> Division uh, Divisions of Cytopathology, Gynecologic and Perinatal Pathology, Molecular Diagnostic Lead Pathologist for Next Generation Sequencing Development and Practice, um, Alina Health Laboratory, a part of Abbott Northwestern Hospital. And Dr. Kerr will be addressing the role of the pathologist, open notes, access to your medical records and pathology reports, help in understanding of pathology reports, and keeping copies of your pathology reports. It's really my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Kerr. Well, hello, everyone. Thank you so much for the opportunity to speak to you today. It is my great pleasure to describe the role of pathology in ovarian cancer care. So first, I want to define pathology and what a pathologist does. I think of pathology as all of the behind-the-scenes work that occurs in a clinical laboratory in the practice of medical care. So every time you get blood drawn or a biopsy or a surgery, a laboratory handles those specimens from you and performs tests. A medical laboratory is made up of teams of staff who specialize in various kinds of testing, including blood testing, testing for infections, small biopsy evaluation, and even the processing of the large surgical resection specimens as are produced during major cancer surgeries, like debulking surgery for ovarian cancer. Basically, anything that is drawn or removed or sampled from a patient in a medical setting is handled in a pathology laboratory, and a pathologist is the doctor who leads that medical laboratory and is responsible for the test results. So um, next, I want to talk about how those biopsy and surgery tissues get from a patient to a pathologist for the various tests that are needed for diagnosis and for choosing the best therapy. The most common type of advanced ovarian cancer, as the prior speakers had discussed, is high-grade serous carcinoma. Patients with this type of cancer will often first go to the doctor with bloating or abdominal fullness 
And further imaging often shows suspicion that cancer is present lining the surfaces of the abdominal organs with too much fluid around them called the ascites. This type of cancer can be diagnosed by taking some of that fluid from around the organs called ascites fluid or taking out a small needle biopsy of the tumor through the skin. The cancer coming, cancer coming from other organs, such as the pancreas or gastrointestinal tract, or even sometimes infections or other conditions, can look similar on imaging studies to ovarian cancer. So it is very important to have a diagnosis by a pathologist. Really, only a pathologist can tell for sure the diagnosis by looking at the tissue or fluid under a microscope. There are so many different types of ovarian cancer, uh, and we're subclassifying different tumors all the time. So if a tumor presents as a pelvic mass and there's no evidence of spread in the abdomen, um, surgery instead of a biopsy or fluid sample might be the best first step. In cases with a large ovarian mass, the surgeon may try to take out the whole mass for the pathologist to diagnose rather than a small biopsy. And this is so the tumor doesn't spill into the abdomen um, as might be punctured during a needle biopsy. After the ovary is taken out, then the pathologist can examine the tumor and, and perhaps take a small sample during the operation for what's called frozen section. This examination in the laboratory happens while the patient is still in the operating room. So the pathologist, after looking at the ovary, taking the small sample and freezing it and putting it under a microscope, uh, tells the surgeon if they should consider perhaps stopping the surgery because the tumor is benign or possibly is metastatic from somewhere else um, other than the ovary, or um, it's high-grade ovarian cancer and they should go forward with taking out the other ovary, the uterus, the omentum, and possibly lymph nodes as part of the staging procedure that Dr. Runowitz described. And then um, after that biopsy or surgery, all of those tissues uh, and fluids go to the laboratory. So the pathologist examines the tissue and defines uh, and identifies important areas for further examination under a microscope. The tissue is processed into little blocks of wax that are cut into very fine, thin sections that are placed onto glass slides to look at by microscope. This is called formalin-fixed paraffin-embedded processing, or FFPE for short. The pathologist looks at all of the glass slides then that, are, that are prepared and tries to decide the tumor type and how far it has spread. Um, so determining the primary site of the cancer or where the cancer started is the most important first step in determining the best therapy. So as part of the examination, the pathologist will determine if the tumor is ovary or ovarian or fallopian tube cancer or sometimes uh, in the case of an ovarian tumor, the tumor is spread from somewhere else, like the colon or appendix. So it's, it's important to make that distinction. And then each type of cancer has different subtypes and what's called grades, high grade versus low grade. So um, I like to think of it like I think of fruit. So um, like a fruit might be classified as an apple rather than an orange. Um, if you classify something as an apple, there are different varieties of apples, like Macintosh or Honeycrisp apples or Granny Smith apples. 
And the same is true for different types of ovarian cancer. So as I had mentioned before, high-grade serous carcinoma is one type of ovarian cancer, but there are many other types of ovarian cancer, such as low-grade serous car carcinoma, which is treated differently, um, endometrioid carcinoma, clear cell carcinoma, mucinous carcinoma, and then also um, what we call sex cord stromal tumors, like granulosa cell tumor. Each of these different kinds of cancer have different approaches to therapy. So this process of making a diagnosis usually takes a few days, but can take longer depending on if the tumor is you know, something common that we see all the time, or if it's something unusual where we need to show other pathologists and get special studies. And so um, after all of this work in the laboratory, a cancer patient and their doctors will receive a diagnostic report from the pathologist containing the final diagnosis for the tumor, and after a large surgery, the pathology report will include staging information describing how far the cancer has spread. The diagnosis is based on the appearance of the tumor under a microscope, in addition to the special types of stains that we do on the tumor tissue. The pathology report has multiple components. So the final diagnosis is one component. There may also be a comment about the diagnosis to explain anything difficult or unusual about the case. Uh, there is often a description of the way the sample looked when it was received, which is called a gross description, uh, or how it looked under a microscope, which is called a microscopic description. The results of any special studies that were done to help make the diagnosis will also be recorded in the report. Uh, for staging surgery, the staging information is is summarized in what we call a synoptic report within the pathology report. And so I, I know these pathology reports may be difficult to understand without a medical background, so uh, be sure to go over them with your cancer team. They will often have already discussed the results directly with the pathologist, or as prior speakers had mentioned at a conference, discussing your case in conjunction with the rest of the team including oncologists, surgeons, radiologists, and other pathologists. Um, there are also a few pathology organizations out there that have information online to help you understand how to read a pathology report. Um, the one that I really like to recommend is from the College of American Pathologists online at a website, yourpathologist.org. That's yourpathologist.org. And uh, Dr. Mesner can make that available to you uh, after the conference. I also um, really encourage you to keep a copy of all of your pathology and molecular genetics reports to help your doctors understand your medical history, especially if you see doctors in different systems that don't talk to each other electronically. So for example, you go to your community oncologist and you go for a second opinion somewhere else and the systems are separate from one another, it's really helpful to have those pathology reports with you when you go. Um, the diagnosis could even be important years down the road. You know, say you survive a long time after your initial diagnosis of ovarian cancer and your memory fades of your cancer diagnosis and treatment. It's really helpful to keep those initial reports available. Having your older reports available can help your doctors just immensely with, if new health concerns arise. So for example, if you have a biopsy of a lung nodule, and you know I get that biopsy and I know the patient has a history of a specific type of ovarian cancer, 
that information saves me so much time and helps me to make an accurate diagnosis using less studies and less money. Um, so having those reports available is, is very helpful, especially down the road. Um, one last thing Dr. Mesner asked me to talk about uh, is about online access to your medical records. So in the last few years, um, many hospitals and doctor's offices communicate with patients through online applications, often called portals, um, many of which work on your smartphone or on your computer. And this can be a very convenient way of staying in touch between appointments and asking questions, especially during COVID. Um, you are also often able to access your pathology reports and laboratory results, CT scans, PET scans, and the visit notes from your doctors. And most of these online portals in the past have had uh, pathology reports or radiology scans um, that had holds on them for a few days after they were released so that your doctor would have an opportunity to review them before they were available to you. Um, but something to be aware of is that regulations around this have changed, and your pathology report or other results may be released to your online portal immediately for you to see, um, perhaps even before your doctor has had a chance to see it. So having this information immediately available can be really overwhelming for some patients, especially with these long, detailed reports with a lot of complicated medical language. Um, but in some cases, it could be very empowering to have those reports to prepare for your visit with your doctor. So just something to be aware of. This is something to talk about with your doctor ahead of time. So for example, do you want to see the results of an important biopsy yourself? Or do you want to wait and talk to your doctor and not look at it? Um, do you want to make sure someone is around for support when you get your follow-up CT scan back online uh, when the report comes out? These are things to think about and are really individualized decisions to talk about with your doctor. Okay, so that's all I have for today. Thanks so much for listening to me talk about pathology, and I'm turning over the conference back to Dr. Mesner. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Kerr. That was really outstanding. It's just so wonderful to um, hear from a pathologist because I think so often people don't have a chance to speak to their pathologist and understand how how important they are in in their diagnosis and treatment and just really um, so thank you so much. I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A as well. Thank you. And I'm just going to say a few words um, about um, Cancer Care's programs and services. I'm Carolyn Messner. I'm Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. And I'm going to describe really the three programs and services that are offered by Cancer Care. Cancer Care is a national organization founded in 1944, so it's been around a long time. And our services um, are primarily provided by oncology social workers, and we have what we call the Hope Line, where people can call us on our 800 number and speak with one of our oncology social workers. And people call for many different reasons. Um, usually it's for a support um, around the issue that they're concerned about um, and so that um, they can talk immediately with one of our social workers when they call. You know, we have about 35 social workers, so they're all in queue waiting for your, um, for your calls. Um, but in addition to that, we also offer practical financial and co-payment assistance, and also we have some COVID funds as well, and I think that's been very important for people. It's always been important. It's an important part of our service, actually almost from the inception of the organization, to provide financial assistance 
but I think it's even more important in the world we live in now, definitely important to everybody. Um, and we also offer a case management, which means that we have a team of staff who actually will, if we don't have the resource, we will work with you. So we won't just give you a list of places to call, but we will actually will go with you virtually to the resource, either be in your same community or in your uh, region or, or national, another national program that offers services, and we will connect you, be sure you're connected to that um, additional help that we think would be of help to you. Um, in addition to that, we do offer online support groups, and we do offer um, workshops like these, about 75 of them per year, and a number of publications. So that gives you a, a, a quick picture of all the different services that we offer. Now, before we move into our, um, our questions that you, I know you have for our speakers, we have just a few more questions for you um, and um, uh, at the end of the, so to kind of conclude what you've learned today. It really gives us a good sense of what you may have learned or and what we still need to um, offer you in terms of learning. So um, the first question is, as a result of what I learned in this workshop, I have greater knowledge of the important role of staging, testing, and precision medicine in informing the treatment for ovarian cancer. Again, one is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And the next question is, as a result of what I learned in this workshop, I feel more confident about my knowledge of the current standard of care, new treatment approaches, and follow-up care for ovarian cancer. Again, one is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And the next question is, as a result of what I learned in this workshop, I feel more confident in my knowledge of treatment options for recurrent ovarian cancer. Again, one is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And now just two questions left. As a result of what I learned in this workshop, I have greater confidence in my knowledge of how to work with my healthcare team to utilize their tips and suggestions to manage the symptoms, side effects, discomfort, and pain of ovarian cancer. Again, one is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And then this will be the last question. As a result of what I learned in this workshop, I have greater confidence in participating in clinical trials for ovarian cancer. Again, one is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. So I want to thank you all for participating in the um, in the in answering these questions. Again, it will help us to plan programs going forward that better meet your needs or best meet your needs. And now we're going to move on to our questions um, for our panel of experts. I'm going to ask Michelle to bring all of our speakers on board and also um, to um, explain to all of you how to queue up for online questions. Uh, Michelle. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, if you'd like to ask a question, please press star then one on your touchstone telephone. If your question has been answered and you wish to remove yourself from the queue, 
and yes, that's the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit questions by clicking Ask a Question. And um, the question um, for uh, Dr. Vonda Hendrickson, when should I consider clinical trials for ovarian cancer? That is a wonderful question. Um, I think, you know, when it comes to clinical trials, there is sometimes that perception that, you know, considering clinical trials is done when there are, you know, you've tried other treatment options and so now you're moving on to clinical trials. And I think that's a misconception. So clinical trials really occur throughout the whole process of treatment. And so even at the time of diagnosis, there may be clinical trials that are available. Oftentimes, these clinical trials could be kind of, you know, the standard treatment, but they add an additional drug or they add additional targeted therapy. Um, and so I would say the best time to talk about clinical trials is really anytime you're making treatment decisions. There may be times where there is, you know, the, you, you know, you, you have a discussion with your, your care team and they decide right now, you know, there isn't a good fit, but I think it should be at least discussed at every, every time you make a new treatment decision because there could be options available. So I would say it really should be mixed in throughout all of your, um, all of your treatments. Excellent. Thank you. And we have a question from one of our telephone participants. We have a question from Lynn W. Your line is open. Hi, it's been very exciting to see so many university or academic affiliated hospitals um, just automatically do uh, in, uh, testing on the tumor for inherited mutations. I'm wondering if any of the speakers can talk about the extent to which other healthcare facilities beyond university affiliated hospitals are doing that. Cause it, because it just seems that, that there's so much information that's gleaned from that and um, more people could potentially have access to vital information regarding treatment decisions and ongoing cancer surveillance for other cancers. Mm. Well, thank you, Lynn. Thank you very much. Uh, Dr. Ronowitz, would you like to address that question in a general way? Uh, sure, and then I would love to hear um, Dr. Kerr's take. Um, so I agree with you that um, the university setting is often um, leading the pack in uh, new therapies, in clinical trials, um, and in testing tumors to see potentially what agents might work, um, what we call bucket trials, where we look for certain mutations. And the cancer may or may not be ovarian cancer, um, but we look for a certain mutation. And if that mutation is present, then those tumors that have that mutation will be treated with this new drug. Um, so there are now commercially available um, that any pathologist can use, and I'll be curious to see what Dr. Kerr has to say. Um, and just to name one, but not to um, tell you that this is the only one, Foundation Medicine, for example, can look at mutations in your uh, tumor to see if they are uh, specific to that tumor and perhaps there's um, a drug that it's a druggable target, and you can then go on to what we call a bucket trial, where not only will patients with ovary cancer be on that trial, but all patients with that mutation 
will be treated. So I would definitely speak with your um, physician, your surgeon, and find out, you know, what kind of testing has been done locally, what's available at the university, and then what's available through um, these um, commercial companies. And, you know, I mentioned foundation, but by no means do I endorse that as a single um, company to go to. Thank you. And uh, Dr. Kerr, of course. Oh, thank you so much for that question. Um, so um, you probably don't know this, but I had a career in academic medicine doing next-generation sequencing and gynecologic oncology before going into a community practice setting uh, where I do a similar thing but with um, lower resources. So what usually happens at academic centers is that they often have larger molecular programs in-house with their own testing that's often used sort of primarily, and then reference lab work outside is sort of secondary in some settings, where in community practice, the resources for the molecular laboratory are often lower, um, and we have uh, often more sort of standard basic testing and then have to partner with reference laboratories for these larger tests like BRCA1-2 testing, homologous recombination deficiency testing like in ovarian cancer. Um, but really all of that technology should be available to you in community practice. So it's, it's very important to talk with your doctors about whether that testing is being done or, you know, if you should be going to see a genetic counselor for germline testing for BRCA1 and 2 first or if um, tumor testing is the approach. But I guess the message is that all of that testing should be available to you in community practice. It's just that um, you know, whether it's done at the facility where you're being treated or if, it's, if the tissue is sent to a reference laboratory might be different depending on where you're being seen. Thank you. And, and Dr. Fona Hendrickson, do you want to comment just on how the comprehensive uh, centers, the NCI-designated centers, work with communities, practices, or how patients can actually have a a telehealth telemedicine appointment to really discuss some of these things um, with um, uh, one of someone in an academic in, in a uh, NCI designated center. If you could explain what those are, and um, so people in the community recognize that those centers are available to them too, um, they don't have to travel there always. Yeah, I, yes. Um, so I think you know, taking a step back at time of diagnosis, like Dr. Uh, Ronowitz had mentioned, I do think it's important that your surgery be done by a gynecologic oncologist, if at all possible. So that's a good time to reach out and see if, you know, um, if there is not a gynecologic oncologist nearby to have the surgery done at a, at a larger institution where that is an option. In terms of, you know, tumor testing and that sort of thing, um, you know, the foundation one, the Tempest, those types of, um, Facilities that do the tumor testing can be ordered by your community oncologist as well, since these are all sent out, you know, send out lab tests. So there is opportunity for that type of testing to be done regardless of where you are. But if there are questions or concerns about that, reaching out, you know, to get a second opinion at um, an NCI designated cancer center is always a great option. 
Um, and so it can be a personal referral. You can call. Most uh, cancer centers will have kind of a patient hotline or phone number that you can call and mention that you're interested in a second opinion. It can also be refer a referral through your local oncologist if you just ask and say, hey, I'd like to get a second opinion. What COVID has shown us, I think, the, the silver lining um, has been that we just have much more access um, in terms of those video visits. And so I think if you have a plan in place, but you just want a, um, a second opinion to make sure that that makes sense or that there aren't other clinical trial options, I think that's a great opportunity to use telehealth um, and to do that appointment without having to pay, you know, for the travel, the parking, and that sort of thing. Um, because oftentimes a lot of, you know, the standard FDA-approved chemotherapy can be done locally and maybe traveling to the bigger cancer centers at times of clinical trials um, and those sorts of opportunities. I hope that answered the question. That's wonderful. Thank you all, and, I, and thank you uh, for that question. Um, that was very helpful as well and, and lots, lots of um, helpful, lots of helpful uh, su suggestions here. Um, and another question, um, so this is Dr. Vonovitz, what, what to expect after ovarian cancer is removed from one of our participants? So that's, I think, a post-operative question. So um, when you have your surgery, it'll be done either one of two ways. It'll be done, say, for robotic, um, or if it's if there's large tumor masses in both the a lower abdomen, the upper abdomen, an incision, an open procedure will be done. And it depends on um, what kind of surgery you have as to what kind of postoperative care you have and what kind of postoperative symptoms you have. If you have a robotic surgery, um, it, it's not a walk in the park. Um, people think, oh, well, it's, you know, minimally invasive. And that is true, but it's still surgery. And you will still be tired from surgery. You will still have multiple port sites, little incisions where the instrument went in. And you may have lost blood at the time of surgery, so you may be fatigued. And if you've had an open surgery, um, the recovery for a large incision takes longer than for little small or smaller, or much smaller uh, port sites. So once that has healed up, then you're, and while you're healing, your pathologist is reviewing your um, tumor and looking to characterize what kind of histopathology, and then oftentimes what are the markers, um, on the, is there HRD deficiency, and these will help us determine um, what options for treatment. So while you're recovering, it isn't that nothing is happening. The pathologist is working the tumor board, and I think this is very important, and it, it's part of many, many community hospitals, um, more so um, cancer centers, and certainly NCI, the National Cancer Institute, designated cancer centers, have tumor boards that are comprised of pathologists, UN oncologists, medical oncologists, uh, radiation oncologists, and the pathology is reviewed. Often the literature on what is new is discussed. Um, the stage is determined, and a plan is created. And so um, that 
you know, somewhere between five to ten days. But I recommend that you get treated sooner than later, um, especially if you've had a successful what we call cytoreduction, where the tumor's been peeled back to very little or no residual disease. At that option, it's easier for the chemotherapy. The chemotherapy has less bulk to work on. Excellent. Thank you. Um, and this question um, for Dr. Kerr, can genetic testing help narrow down treatment options? Yeah, that's such a great question. So um, in the, and, and, you know, the oncologist on the call could, could perhaps speak to this as well, but um, especially as ovarian cancer has evolved in terms of our understanding of the genetic mutations in the, in the tumor, um, patients are being stratified into different treatments based on, on molecular testing. So, for example, on this call, we've talked about BRCA1 and 2 testing, and although um, PARP inhibitor therapy may be available regardless of those results, um, some studies have shown that, you know, having a BRCA1 or 2 mutation or having features of what's called HRD or homologous recombination deficiency may predict whether a patient um, is more likely to respond to a PARP inhibitor. In the setting of endometrioid carcinoma or clear cell carcinoma of the ovary, a subset of those tumors will have what's called mismatch repair deficiency or microsatellite instability. And um, looking at second, third, fourth line treatments um, for those patients who have undergone standard treatments, if a tumor has mismatch repair deficiency, uh, those patients may be eligible for immunotherapy as part of as part of their treatment. And so it is very important to know some of those characteristics of a tumor uh, when considering especially treatment down the line after standard treatment. Thank you. And Dr. Vonner, Hendrickson, do you want to add to that? Yeah, so um, what part would you like me to comment on? <laughs> oh, just the... Oh. <laughs> Um, I guess what you felt would might be helpful to our participants, or in terms of of tumor testing and treatment options, I just want to make sure that I'm answering that. Oh yes, oh yes, uh, yes, yes, of yes. course. Yes. In terms of yes. yes, yeah. So, so I think tumor testing can be very helpful um, in multiple stages, and so I think at time of you know initial treatment, we now have that maintenance therapy of PARP inhibitors, which is an oral medication that can be given as a maintenance therapy. And the effectiveness of this is somewhat related to um, kind of your, your tumor's ability to repair damaged DNA. So doing tumor testing up front, I think, is important because it can give you an idea of how beneficial that treatment will be for you so that you can make that decision in terms of, you know, do you want to take an oral medication once or twice daily um, or not? And so I think it's very helpful then. I think it is also helpful in recurrent cases where when you are thinking about clinical trial options, um, tumor testing can, can now, as I think Dr. Ronowitz also had talked about, there are now clinical trials that are not like 
ovarian cancer specific, but are more specific for specific mutations within the tumor. So you could be on a clinic, the same clinical trial as someone with a gastric cancer or a colon cancer, but your tumor has a specific mutation, and now there are more targeted therapies uh, for specific mutations. And so, you know, I, I think it's helpful throughout the course of therapy. And so talking to your uh, oncologist about that option I think is really important. Excellent. Well, I have to say I want to thank all of our speakers. You've been phenomenal. This has been an amazing program. And I want to thank all of you who have asked questions, both on the phone and online. Um, we do have many more questions, um, and we could go on for another hour or two probably, but I'm going to kind of address that in just a minute. Um, but we are going to – we said this would be an hour program, so I want to first of all thank everyone. It's been amazing. Um, I do want to comment on those of you who um, both asked a question or um, in listening to the program thought of a question that you'd like to ask um, and didn't get a chance to ask it or came up with another question you'd like to ask. So for all of you, I'd like you to go back to treating healthcare team, take what you've learned today and bring it to them. We hope that you have your questions may be more informed in terms of having some more information. And bring it to your healthcare team and ask them your questions because they, of course, know you the best. They're treating you, and I think they could probably provide um, some additional help to you. And we also know that many of you do like to um, go to um, other places to get information. We want you to be sure to be going to credible resources to get information, um, we want you to be sure to go to places that actually have experts um, uh, addressing the questions. So um, we often give people um, cancer.gov, and you'll be at the end of this program today. You'll be getting um, a survey monkey evaluation, and it'll be an, it's an evaluation that we appreciate your completing. But in addition to that, we will provide a listing of a few other resources one that Dr. Kerr had mentioned, and then other resources that um, are, are places that you can get very credible information. If indeed you would like to just get some additional information from what you've learned today, that would be helpful to you. And most importantly, as we conclude the program today, I would not want any of you to feel you're alone. You do have your healthcare team, and they are available to you. Of course, and your team consists of many different people. Um, you do have, of course, the resources of Cancer Care and all the other resources I'm going to provide for you that you can contact as well. Uh, again, credible resources. And so although it is very tempting to feel alone in coping with ovarian cancer, any type of cancer, and particularly at this time um, with this uh, pandemic that's been around for about a year and a half now, nevertheless, um, we want you to know that you're connected either by phone or 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 mouse click away from any website that we recommend that you go to um, and for information. So again, I want to thank you all for your participation today. I want to remind you that um, there is an ASCO meeting, American Society of Clinical Oncology meeting, coming up in uh, in very soon, actually, and um, we will be doing a post ASCO um, series, a two part series in July and August, and you'll be getting um, information about those dates, and there will be a one that will that will be um, a part of one of the programs that will focus on ovarian cancer. So just so you know that in terms of any other updates. So again, I want to thank you all for your participation today, and I want to wish you all a very fine day. Thank you all. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop, and you may now disconnect. Everyone, have a great day.